Hey there, this is Jason and Paul, and we encourage you to follow us on Instagram at stateofloveandtrust underscore pod, where we can continue the conversation with you. Thanks for listening. And now, let's get to the show. Welcome again back to another episode of The State of Love and Trust, a Pearl Jam podcast. Uh, I'm one of your two hosts, Jason Carapesi, alongside, as always, Paul Gillieri. Paul, we've got a very Stone Gossard-themed show. Are you excited? I am excited. I am grateful, as is the theme of the week. Yes, as we were recording this, it's the very tail end of Thanksgiving week, and... Um, Hopefully, you all had a good Thanksgiving, those of us in the United States. Hopefully, we were able to celebrate um, with family, safely, but with a full belly. And uh, thinking about the positives from this from this year, this fuck of a year, if I may. <laughs> <laughs> I like when people yes. use the word fuck as a noun. It's a really yeah. good time. And uh, already explicit, 45 seconds in, fantastic. So anywho, uh, in the last week or so, we've gotten some articles, we've got some media, some publications about our guys. We've had an interview with Jeff last week. Yeah. And then it's an later, one, actually. It was very good. Later in the week, though, we got two from Kerrang! And they focused in mostly on uh, the new Painted Shield record that Stone did with a couple other dudes, including Matt Chamberlain, formerly of Pearl Jam for three weeks or six weeks. And uh, we will get to talking about that record because it is very interesting. But we wanted to go through these two articles first. There's some very interesting quotes related to Pearl Jam, related to Chris Cornell, related to um, Brad. And eventually what we'll do, since this is very Stone-themed, we're not going to choose our favorite Stone songs, but we will choose our favorite Stone riffs. And because there's so many, we're choosing Quiet and Loud. So I know people are going to chime in and be like, how is it not number one? How is this not number five? Blah, 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 blah. And you know what? That's fine. Because and- I said so. That's exactly. <laughs> Stone Cold said so. And you can at us all you want. We will reply in kind. It'll be great. It'll be good conversation. We like discourse here. Discourse. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start off with the Kerrang! articles. And I want to start with a quote, Paul, that I think is maybe the most popular isn't the, isn't the right word, but it's become something that I've seen passed on the internet in the last few days the most. Okay. And that is this. I write every song for Eddie. Ultimately, he's my muse. I would love to write 50 songs a year f- with him, but it's just not on the cards. It just doesn't work like that for me, for him. When he's in a writing process, it's different than it is for me. I can write all the time. The way Eddie really operates, the way that he loves to get music is for something that's immediate for you coming in at a time when he's ready to connect with it. He likes to be in the process with you. So if I send him 30 ideas, it's just too much information for him to manage. That's just not how his brain works. So my question to you then is, does this make sense? Does this frustrate you as a fan? Do you think it frustrates Stone? Are we missing out on a ton of extra albums? Like, what's the story here? I don't think we're missing out on albums because, you know, there was a time where Stone was the driving force behind the songwriting, but that was really just the first couple of records. And when I... Frustrated is not the right word. Perplexed, perhaps. And I Mm. say that because if Ed is constantly in search of this kind of serendipitous spontaneity you know, this immediacy to the creative process of songwriting when it comes to collaborating with his, his band members. I guess um, on one hand, it's like y- you do what you got to do. You know what I mean? These, these guys are artists. And if, if Stone has the ability to just write, 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 then I guess it should, it should revolve around Ed's clock in that sense. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. if not, if you have Ed coming in and he's basically trying to add filler to a litany of tracks, you're not getting the best of Ed. You know what I mean? Or it's, it sounds like for Stone, it's, it, he has no problem with just seeing whatever sparks his, his singer. And so, or his bandmate. 
So I don't necessarily have an issue with it, but I do question what does get left off. And I, I, I would love to know if Ed has ever asked himself, you know what, just send me some stuff and let me just sit with it. It's, if, it's COVID, man, right? You, you, <laughs> if there was ever a time for Ed to just get a bevy of tracks, of, of riffs, licks, whatever sent his way, and just kind of hang with it, just let that stuff marinate and just see where it takes him over time without this need to have to respond necessarily. Maybe that just simply doesn't work for him. I don't know. But um, I also wonder if that's that's where, where Stone was going when he, he talked a little bit about those little masterpieces that were... Mm left off gigaton you know i wonder you know I, I will say this though just there's one song on gigaton that surprised me that that was the one that spoke to ed so much oh we'll get there we will yeah um i think it's interesting that well we don't know the rest of the band but that stone has become and this is not the right word but i can't think of a better one right now subservient to Ed's direction. And we know that that Stone kind of passed the baton of band leader to Ed around the Vitalogy sessions or so. That kind of, that's when Ed became- I think he acquiesces. Acquiesces is a better yeah. word. There you go, exactly. Yeah. Um, bequeathed the throne, if I may. <laughs> um, but before then, it was, it was him and Jeff really putting these things together and they then- present them to Ed and Ed would throw some words on it. And Hey, I mean, we're not breaking any news here, but the most successful albums in their career and most popular overall are the first couple of albums. Mm -hmm. So what, what do you think Ed would do if stone brought these, all these different ideas straight to the other guys first and got them to be like really excited about it maybe throw on some other ideas and then present those more fully fleshed ideas out to Ed, as opposed to maybe each person bringing in a little nugget, a little seedling to Ed to germinate. Why is it all going directly through? I know Ed's got to sing these songs and he's the band leader, but why can't there be more of a, Hey, Stone and Jeff have this really cool thing. And we're really into it. Put a little more oomph behind it, a little more pressure. Does that think that would work now? Or is it just totally up to Ed? Um, I don't think the band members push in that direction. So would it work? I, Eddie doesn't strike me as this authoritarian. You know what I mean? I, I do think that to a certain degree, he's kind of taken the mantle of, of leading the band forward. Stone even refers to him as he's our leader, you know? Mm -hmm. And there's a trust there from the band. Um, I, you know, people change. Uh, the way you play guitar changes. The the the, the musical interests and inclinations well, I, I, evolve. I personally still suck at guitar, so I yeah. don't change. Well, well <laughs> if you suck, that then I don't know where that leaves me, buddy. But I will say this: um, the type of music Stone wrote for those first couple of albums, I don't hear a lot of that in a, in his solo work a lot. True. So I, I I I feel like that was a time and a place, and he has grown as a guitar player and as a songwriter in ways where a fan complaining and saying, I wish they'd let stone, you know, lead the songwriting process more. Mm -hmm. You might get something cl closer to painted shield in the end. You know what I mean? Versus what you're getting on the albums that we've received over the last 10 or 15 years. Like I, yeah, I wonder how many of the ideas that he, or Brad, right? Right. <laughs> how many of the ideas that he's had that he says, okay, I just can't bring all these to Ed has he then shelved for other projects? Well, part of it is the, the need to shelve because they're all different vibes. I mean, Brad well, was it, completely different vibe. And so it is, but, but think of the guys that are singing those songs. He, he made note in the interview that his songwriting process almost seems to self adjust mm. based on who is going to be singing his track. Cause he says, I can't sing, you know, he goes, I, I'm not a singer. And so when you look at it that way, I feel like when he's writing a song, he has, you know, a vocalist in mind whether it's a Mason Jennings or an Eddie Vedder, whoever it happens to be. And so that's going to inform the way that he writes. And so I don't think he's going to write a song in a key that we might listen to the instrumental and say, God, this sounds outstanding. 
only to realize, well, that key just does not work with Ed at mm-hmm. all. You yeah, know maybe. what I mean? And so, and then suddenly the fault, the song falls flat. Well, he does say, he mentions how um, excited he still gets when Ed finds something he writes cool that, you know, that it's validating to him. So that it's, it's great to know that these guys can still excite one another, musically speaking. And that was the response for buckle up. Um, yeah. I was wondering if you were, if you headed there next. Yeah. So this is, this is my next, uh, my next quote here that I've pulled. Um, when I'm talking about the meaning of the song, he says, I'm mixing metaphors all over the place, but that's absolutely where it's coming from. Talking about, um, uh, taking responsibility for yourself, that kind of thing. Right. Um, the line antiquities falling into the Nile. It's just like saying everything must pass. It's that inevitability of decline. You're going to be confronted with some of the most challenging moments of your life. And you've got to put on your big boy pants and buckle up. You actually said those exact words when we did our <laughs> review all those months ago. Um, so he goes on, you're going to be challenged by life and particularly life as you get older and are confronted with mortality. Um, I think you more or less hit the mark when deciphering what he meant by all that. At the time, I couldn't make sense of those mixed metaphors. And it seems that even the interviewer was like, can you clarify what the hell you meant? Because it's all over the place. And he acknowledges that it's all over the place. You know, man, it's true. There are a lot of mixed metaphors, but you look at some of the, of the lyrical content there, you know, blood on my hands, the stain of a human, um, bed sores and sponge baths. I mean, it really is kind of like coming to terms with, in a lot of ways, it's reminiscent of that song Lightning Crashes from yeah. Live, mm-hmm. where you kind of have this, these, this allegory of life coming into the world as life passes and, and that being part of the circle. And you see some of that happening in this song here where he, he talks about basically what it feels like to care for somebody who's really deteriorating and, and the, the stain of blood that's left on your hands as life passes. But at the same time, what, what, what it feels like to, to kind of feel reborn in a sense, because you have to buckle up, you know what I mean? You've got to buckle up and get ready. And, and the, the antiquities lost, lost to the Nile line. I thought was really interesting. He actually references that in the interview mm. where he talks a little bit about what that means. You know what I mean? This idea of just kind of getting lost in, in, in these struggles and these challenges and, and this need to have to kind of rise to the occasion. Um, musically speaking, it's very whimsical. It's reminiscent of parachutes, which is another stone song. Yeah. Um, Beatles vibe to it, I think. Yeah, it does, you know, and, and we talked about that in, in our review of gigaton, but I find it fascinating that Ed was drawn to it. And, and I feel like these, these guys, w- when you're doing something that's a little outside of the box, it really perks you up a little bit. Um, and, and it excites you. I mean, these guys have been doing this together for a long time. Well, and th- there's always going to be a need to kind of reinvent yourself. And, I, and I'm sure you're going to bring this up when we talk about other bands in music who have done dramatic 180s and reinvented themselves and how Stone actually references one of those bands. Well, you're leading me right to the, right to the water here. Um, he says, there's some new territory there, talking about Gigaton, and I think it bodes well for whatever comes next. I think we're still scratching the surface in terms of what really could be significantly different sounding songs. I guess I would probably compare what I'm thinking of to an OK Computer Kid A moment, talking about Radiohead, thinking about Radiohead's transformation and the journey that they went on. And he then goes on to say, uh, it's not going to be OK Computer, obviously, the next the next record, but a moment where we stumble onto something that is significantly different, that prospect always intrigues me. I'd like to make another record that really shocks people, that makes them go, wow, that's unexpected. So A... With COVID and with um, all this time for everybody to to reflect and to ponder and to be creative and be inspired by negativity or positivity or whatever is going on in their lives, could we get a follow up to Gigaton fairly quickly? As well, in Pearl Jam standards, at least. And you know, what would it sound like based on what he's talking about? I'm excited, man. I um. I know we didn't see eye to eye initially when Dance of the Clairvoyance came out, but I loved the ambitious nature of the track. I loved how the band kind of came at music from a fresh angle. 
And this makes me feel really optimistic about the band's longevity, about their ability to continue to make meaningful, um, impactful, relevant music. You know, I don't want them to be trying to recycle the same albums over and over and over again, just trying to, you know, keep alive, you know, to not the song alive, no pun intended, but to keep this vibe alive, you know what I mean? That that has yeah. long since evolved, you know, and, and the band has evolved and their music should evolve with them. And this piece of the puzzle, I think, excites me. And I think you you're absolutely right that I'd be hard pressed to see another six, seven, eight, nine years go by without seeing another album from these guys with all the music that's sitting around and with nothing to do, but just keep making music and, and responding to so much of what's going on out there. Um, I'd like to think, I mean, just, you know, Ed wrote a, a couple of songs. We've been getting new music, you know? So. We have. Yeah. I mean, Jeff put out an EP in, in June that, mm-hmm. I mean, in that in interview that, that I mentioned earlier, he said he, when the COVID started, when the lockdown started, he tried to do a new song, was it a day or a week? I don't even remember what the hell. I, Either way, he challenged himself to be creative in the morning and then be active in the afternoon. And what came out of that was a, like a eight song EP. So he's getting his juices flowing. Stone obviously did the whole pain and shield thing. Of course, that was a lot of that had started well beforehand, but now he's already talking about doing a second one. Yeah. These guys have time. And if enough of these, if Stone's always writing, which he he says in both of these articles that he's just constantly an idea factory, you know, you've got to think that this band, our favorite band, will do something. We'll, we'll, well they're not have, sidetracked with touring. <laughs> exactly. So you've got to imagine that in this time that we have, you know, before normalcy sort of returns, I mean, they got two shows scheduled in Hyde Park in next June or July in, in, in London. So normalcy will be creeping back in, into the picture once this vaccine gets put out and all that shit and, and we can kind of get back to things. They will have time to to put together some ideas that they have. I'm curious how much farther down the the unique path they're going to go. Because, you know, as you mentioned, I, my, my first seven, eight, nine listens to Dance of Clairvoyance, I was like, what the well, you're, you're not going to get a new wave. Pearl Jam no, I don't think I will, but it threw me for a loop. It does. And, and I will say the rest of the record, even though it's, it is a, a, a rock record, there's a lot of, of textural things happening. And kudos to Josh Evans for pushing them to do that and saying, Hey, I did all this shit over here onto this, onto this uh, track. And um, I painted this guitar with all these different effects. Do you like that? And they're like, yeah, cool. Like they're open to ideas, which is great. I love that. I'm just curious how far down some of these paths they'll go. Well, 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 let me let me just rope in the two bands you've already mentioned. So you look at Radiohead. Radiohead's career, mm-hmm. okay? You look at albums like Pablo Honey and the Benz, and there's a lot of people that just jump shit when OK Computer came out. It was such a departure from what they had done. But it was mm-hmm. in many ways, it was a natural progression, I felt like. Now, OK Computer was a, a, a perfect lead into what Kid A would become. And right. there's, there's many folks that actually, there's a lot of diehard radio fans that would count Kid A as, as their greatest album. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was the type of thing where they, there were a lot of diehard radio fans that loved the initial sound that kind of had trouble accessing this, this new version of the band. But Pearl Jam's already been through that. That album was called No Code. Okay. Well, then so, even yield after that yield that was a, that was a departure. That, there were some things that were referenced from from the from the past that came into yes. it. Riot Act was again a shift in in even the production sound, the sound of the guitars, the binaural was, as well with that sound. I or mean, sorry, I meant to say binaural, and then uh, into Riot Act, those two kind of are are so different sounding to yield and no code and obviously the early albums. Right. So they've had these textural changes over the years. I think. Maybe just the electronic thing hadn't really come into into play so much, right? And so and the digital the layering, that, right? The fact that he referenced Radiohead tells me that they're going to incorporate more of the digital atmospheres, which I'm actually excited about. I think it's pretty cool, but mostly because you look at the way Matt Cameron plays with effects, you you listen to the way that they layered things at the end of Retrograde. Um, you listen obviously to dance of the clairvoyance and, and how they were able to layer that, you know, I think, um, 
Jeff had commented at one time, he said that dance, the clairvoyance was like this perfect marriage between experimentation and collaboration, you mm. know? So I think that, 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 that type of songwriting process is really, really exciting them. And that excites me because if they're inspired, it means that we're going to get something really, really good. Now, the other band you mentioned was the Beatles. Now, if you look back, I mean, I, I want to say that rubber soul was the last album the Beatles toured for. Because after Rubber know. Soul, you got Revolver, you know, you got uh, Sgt. Pepper, I think, came out after that. And so most people would say that those three albums, Rubber Soul, uh, Revolver, and Sgt. Pepper's, are the greatest Beatles albums of all time. I mean, I, yeah, I'm a big fan of Abbey Road, but that happens even after all that. So if, if you look at that style of music they didn't tour anymore so they just lost themselves in the experimentation and the evolution of we don't the songwriting process <laughs> well uh, no we don't and but i, that I don't is, think but that is the key i think it, i think i know where you're going go ahead i was gonna say I don't, we're never gonna see pearl jam abandon the road because they've said so many times that they write music to play alive that's there's a whole reason they well, ever then, wanted to cut an album was to give themselves the opportunity so then, to the go question the, the question is as as creative and and open to these you know newer uh, styles with with um, digital electronic that kind of thing. How far can they really go and then be able to recreate that live? T- to me, that's actually cool because it they'll be inspired, they'll be so jazzed to make new songs, but in the back of their mind, that they, they know that they've got to pull this off live. Well, that's the difference because the Beatles knew they weren't going to tour, so they grabbed whatever instrument they felt like picking up. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. they didn't have to care about having five rigs full of, you know, different instruments in order to go tour. They didn't have to worry about that. Well, that's why Paul McCartney piano. tours and he's got fucking 18 musicians on stage. Yeah, him. it's insanity, yeah. you know, and not not in a bad way. I mean, it's really cool, but I'm just yeah. saying that for Pearl Jam, the way they tour, that's never going to happen. I mean, as it is, it's like, it's, you know, you, you take a song like The End or Just Breathe. It's not like they travel. I mean, we were lucky. We got to see them in 09 for the Backspacer tour and they had strings. Yeah. Some of those shows. And that really, really made a lot of these songs great. But I will say that I do think that we're going to see them move in the direction more of what we saw with Radiohead and what we saw with the Beatles, where they're starting to, to, to realize, gosh, man, like we can really have a lot of fun in here. But at the same time, always being anchored and grounded by the fact that if how do you play this live? And I wouldn't be surprised if, if they do something very different where they say, you know what, we're going to record it this way, but we can play it live that way. And so you're, mm-hmm. you might find yourselves in a situation where you're hearing kind of like two different versions of a song. The, the track that I'll, I'll point to for that is Sleight of Hand because live, it sounds nothing like the way that it does on the album. There's so much atmosphere on the album and you don't get much, much of that at all in the live version. And so I'll be shocked if they're not thinking about how they want to play these songs live, but I also believe that they're not going to be shackled and handcuffed by that either. Well, let's move on to uh, a band that's not Pearl Jam that includes Stone Gosford. That would be Brad. And there was uh, a couple questions posed by the Kerrang staff in regards to uh, Brad's singer, Sean Smith. Um, mm-hmm. He did, he died last year, complications from diabetes and they they asked about is there material and stone says there are brad songs for sure uh, i think we have a record but um reagan and uh, hager uh, well reagan hager uh, the drum drummer and keith lowe the bassist and i have to go back in and make the right choices about presenting that record in a way that makes the most sense there's lots of sean solo stuff there are some sean smith songs that are beautiful that haven't been heard yet it's going to take a little bit of time to get through that stuff and figure it out and make sure it's right. So that's the plan. There are songs. We're going to put them out at some point, and I think it's a record. So looking forward to that as well, because, I mean, the Brad stuff was always kind of cool, in my opinion. I liked it. I mean, I never got into a full album. I feel like I'd, I'd listen to an album, and there'd be one or two tracks that kind of stood out that I'd be like, oh, that's cool. I'll throw that on a mixtape, you know? But mm-hmm. it's never something I go back to and say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to f- stick this guy on and let it play. Whereas with Pearl Jam, they specifically write records to be listened to all the way through. They right. realize that we may not do that, that not every listener is going to listen to their music that way. But they write albums and they structure and sequence the songs in a way it, to cater to those who do. 
Whereas with, with, with Brad, I'm not, whether they do structure their album that way or not, there's not enough of the music that speaks to me. And, and this is in no way an indictment of the quality of the sound or the craftsmanship or musicianship that's happening. It just, it's not my thing, you know? Do you think that Painted Shield kind of um, is the project that, that fills the gap left by Brad? I know a lot of these songs had their infancy many years ago. So at least for the creative outlet of Stones, do you think this is kind of filling that space? Or is it I just- do. I feel like, well, first of all, the singers are different. You know what I mean? So oh, you have different vocalists. Different. and, and different. As Stone mentioned in these articles, you know, he really does find himself kind of writing songs with a vocalist in mind, you know? And so I think that colors the way he, he writes riffs and, and, and songs. And I believe that, and I've always felt this way about all members of the band, including Eddie, that they are best together. That, that nothing they do separately is ever going to surpass what they're capable of together. And th- that is not an indictment on any one of them as musicians. Uh, I just feel that these outlets are part of what keep them going. This is something you mentioned in prior episodes, Reese, and I'm really glad they have these side projects because I feel yeah. like they never feel stifled as a member of Pearl Jam. You know, that they have the creative freedom to go explore these things and say, well, I'm really digging this sound, but it's not a Pearl Jam thing. That's all right, because I can go do, do it this way, you know. So I'm always intrigued by this, and I'm drawn to hearing it, but very little of it from the guys outside of the Pearl Jam dichotomy, from that paradigm, as it were, really speaks to me. Well, let's talk about it. Let's talk about Painted Shield. And it came out, their debut album came out this past Friday. Um we both had a run through of it uh, last night mm-hmm. and it's, it's very, I mean, obviously it's very different from, from Pearl Jam. Well, what are your, what are your kind of broad stroke thoughts on the record? Um, it didn't speak to me. <laughs> okay. I appreciated it. What I appreciated was I, I, I always listen to these side projects with Pearl Jam in mind. And I try to think, Oh, would this be a Pearl Jam song? And I like doing it this way because I, I know that it won't be a Pearl Jam song. And I don't hold that against the track because it's a different band. But what's fascinating is I get excited about hearing something that doesn't sound like a Pearl Jam song. You know what I'm saying? And so to that end, I thought Painted Shield was a, it was an enjoyable pass through. Um, but it wasn't something that to me, I would say like demands a lot of re-listening, I suppose. Um, I mean, there was there was a couple of tracks that I thought were really interesting. Yeah, what stood out to you? Um, probably the middle of the record with "On the Level," "I Am Your Country," and ten years from now. Uh, but you know, there's some Nine Inch Nails things going on on. Uh, what was it on the level? I think, or ten years from now, or I am your country. One of these three. I have to go back to my. Notes. I made a Nigel Nails note about I am your country, so maybe. It Thank was you. The- that that was the one. Yeah, kind of has this like thumping drone at the mm-hmm. beginning, and so that I thought was interesting. Um, and I wonder if that's kind of a precursor to what Stone talked about in terms of where the music could evolve with Pearl Jam, mm. in terms of kind of saying, "Hey, I I kind of want to write some stuff that makes people think, wow, like the." I wasn't expecting to hear this from the band. So in that respect, it's always interesting to kind of see what the each member of the band is flirting with on the side, because it can sometimes give you a little bit of a glimpse into what you might see bleed into Pearl Jam, even in small doses. So what I loved about Painted Shield was how eclectic and diverse it was and how different from anything else Pearl Jam has done that most of this music sounds. And it excited me about the future of where Pearl Jam's music will go. Because while this on its own did not necessarily stand tall for me, the foundational principles on which Stone was experimenting and growing and evolving his sound, that is going to still provide a platform that I believe the other members of Pearl Jam will be able to contribute to in ways that I think will really make something special when we get more Pearl Jam music down the road. Uh, well, it's funny you mentioned um, better working together because there are two tracks that include Mike McCready 
Mm-hmm. Uh, he had Jeff on here too, I think. Did he? Yeah, I'm pretty sure Jeff collaborated on a track oh, wow. too. Um, I know on the level and evil wins. Um, Mike was included. The the on the level stuff. Uh, I couldn't really pick out. It must, it must have been much more subtle. Evil wins. There's two solos that are great. Um, yes. In my opinion, uh, another couple of songs that really stood out to me were the title track "Painted Shield" and "Time Machine." I really enjoyed this album. Sonically speaking, is so unique to me. Maybe I don't I don't listen to a lot of music in this universe, so maybe that's on me. Maybe it isn't that new, but there are so many different guitar tones and sounds. It's almost like Stone had a lesson from Tom Morello. Hmm. You know, um, the production is so interesting. It's almost like nothing I've ever really heard. Um, the use of panning and reverb and synths to augment the big guitar tones. Yeah. That's just wild to me. Like this shit was just all over the place. It, it, it felt like it almost felt like it was a natural extension in a way to Gigaton and how Josh was making Gigaton sound so unique and layered compared to other Pearl Jam records. This is the album that I think Stone really fell in love with Reverb because it was all <laughs> over this record. There's just like swells and shimmers and all kinds of shit. And, it, and the coolest thing to me, beyond the fact that it felt like there were elements of Pink Floyd, Motorhead, Johnny Cash, Nine Inch Nails, I heard all this stuff all blanketed with like this digital electronic sensibility. Um, the cool thing for me being a guitar player who, like I said, is not terribly good, but it was really inspiring to rethink how I would write music. Just, you know, some of the guitar riffs are just simple little things, but then there's this crazy sound on the right that augments that. And then the vocals come in and they're layered and like, they don't, they're just ping ponging back from ear to ear. So it got my juices flowing. Is it the greatest thing I've ever heard? No. Um, Re-listenability for me, not terribly high, but I'm surprised at how much I liked it considering the first time I heard the single back way back when I didn't care for it. So I'm pleasantly surprised. And uh, it's just, you know, it's something to listen to until those masterpieces become a next record. Yeah. Um, the last thing I'll say is a quote from the Seattle Times from Stone. He says, so yes, they totally inform each other. All through the period of time that we were putting this record together, we were doing demos for Gigaton, like I said. So mm-hmm. there was that that co that commingling of ideas between uh, his two brains. But anywho, this got us thinking about Stone's writing and you know writing for Pearl Jam. It's Pearl Jam podcast, so we will talk about Stone's songs down the line, as we have done for Matt and Ed and Jeff. Mm-hmm. But what are the moments within the songs? What are the riffs within the songs mm-hmm. that really stand out? That are legendary? That are just epic little bits of beauty? Even maybe maybe the song isn't isn't that great, but this one riff is just excellent. <laughs> so so many songs from Stone. Let's separate it into quiet and loud. Okay. And I'm gonna have you start with some some songs that didn't quite make the cut for you. Um, on quiet, we'll start with quiet songs. Anything that kind of just didn't really make the top five for you? That didn't make the top five. Um, Buckle up and parachutes didn't make the top five. But I like I like those tracks though. I you know and mm-hmm. parachutes is I didn't like at all when I first heard it, but it has grown on me over the years. Yeah, you and said I could as see, much. Yeah. I could I could see buckle up kind of having a similar effect uh, as as it ages with me. But on, on the quiet side, who you are was close. Mm-hmm. Um, I've kind of felt like it was the type of track that I love the world beat eclectic nature of it. But in terms of like a riff, um, it's really simple and, and it's what I loved about it actually. Um, but it just, it's the type of song that it's not that it doesn't fit in the Pearl Jam catalog, it just feels like this really interesting kind of weekend somewhere new. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of come back to whatever Pearl Jam was at the time and, and, and eventually it becomes. Yeah. And it's fun to look back on that weekend and kind of revisit <laughs> that from time to time. I really enjoy it. But if that was the way their music sounded all the time, 
I don't know how long the the longevity of the music would would truly sustain itself. Sure. Um, I would say for me, I really I agree with you. Parachutes and Buckle Up are are interesting riffs, and if if I did. <laughs> I like parachutes more than I like buckle up. I'm still having trouble with buckle up, but um, so the songs aren't, aren't high up my scale, but those riffs mm-hmm. are pretty cool. And so I think they should be mentioned honorably. And I also really, really like fatal. Oh. I think it's a really simple little riff. I think it's really, really great. Not as great though. as my number five, my number five riff on the quiet side is this. So All or None, the main verse riff of All or None, it's a simple strumming pattern, as you heard, and maybe it's the tone of the guitar, I don't know what it is, but it just, it gets me in this in this mindset, like I'm in a cabin, and I'm just, I don't know, it's just a really, really great riff, I really enjoy it. What's your number five? Five for me would probably be Hold On. Love it, man. I've always loved the um, the riff to that song. It's just, it's one of those mid-tempo songs that, that that's the space the band has always thrived in for me. Mm. And I, I dig the, I dig the riff. I dig the whole song. I actually love the riff over the, the chorus as well. It's a, it's a track I wish they played more often, actually. And for those listening to this, the Lost Dogs version is not the best version of the song. There is a, an actual version of the track from the 10... I'm sorry. I think it was the 10 recording sessions. I have to go back and check. But from the original recording sessions in the early 90s, and uh, Eddie obviously was younger and more robust in his singing style, so he sounds so much better on it. Uh, But if you can get your hands on that, highly recommend it because it'll completely change your experience of the song. Number four, I'm going with this one. The main uh, intro and verse riff from Garden. Nice. That simple picking pattern, that clean picking pattern that Stone does. I've just learned it myself. It is tricky. It's very tricky. And I just really love, especially in that song, the dichotomy of that versus the heavy ass chorus in, in, okay. in bridge sections. But that, that that as a quiet riff is just, it's just beautiful. What That's do you got for number four? Number four for me is In Hiding. Ooh. Um, you put it, that as quiet. I did actually. Yeah. Okay. Uh, interesting. It, it, that it, it's a to me it's it's a very radio friendly kind of poppy rock song in some okay. ways. Um, obviously, the the pre-chorus is heavier. Yes. Um, yes. But but I'm thinking more along the lines of how the song opens um, and how it fades out at the end as mm. well. And the, there's just something very kind of. Uh, accessible in a way that I actually thought that was going like, and many people were surprised it wasn't a single. single I think Ed yeah. actually made yeah. a remark about that. He's like, I don't know why you never released it as a single. You probably <laughs> should have. I mean, it's, but uh, yeah, that, that one clocks in at four for me. Uh, I got at number three, the main iconic riff from daughter. I mean, that's a, a really funky tuning. It's like an open G tuning on the acoustic guitar. And it's just, everyone knows that. You do. I don't have to say anything more. It's just, it's just so recognizable. You just heard it. It's fantastic. What do you got? For, what do you got? Three. Three for me is release. It's just a beautiful album closer. And, the you know, you mentioned the reverb, you know what I mean? It, mm. it, there's something very emotive about the way that that comes out. And uh, Eddie was able to, to personalize that in such a heartfelt way through the lyrics that it really is a perfect marriage in many ways between riff and, and lyric. And uh, it's 
arguably many people's favorite Pearl Jam song of all time. Well, number two, I've got to go with the uh, the intro, the verse riff for uh, for Black. It's iconic. We're at the point there now where I can say the song or say the riff and you go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but none of those riffs, it's like, oh, yeah. You could walk into our record store and everyone's going to be like, oh, I know that song. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So black number two, easy choice for me. What do you got number two? That's also my number two. Which okay. Is, which is strange because it's my favorite Pearl Jam song. I know. Period. I was wondering where you're going to put this one. But musically, it took a, you know, and I said this and I think one of our very first episodes that, I didn't love the song the first time I heard it. Mm-hmm. I was young and stupid. And uh, as a teenager, you know, it's like, <laughs> this is too slow. <laughs> Put on once. But um, as I've grown older, I've fallen in love with the song, obviously, and 10 times over. But the, the, the music itself, the riff itself, um, I don't know. That, that, the riff towards the end, I think, as it builds, oh, really yeah. gets me. I mean, that's where it really, really shines. But the, the whole first half of the song is outstanding. But there's something I think that that hits me a little harder. Well, uh, we're not going to have the same one because my number one is release. Oh, okay. I I know you put it at three. It, it's it's such a simple little arpeggio D thing, and it just it kind of drones, mm-hmm. you know, and it just sits in this place. And it's a beautiful bedrock for the for everything that Ed does with it. And I could literally play that for like 20 minutes and I wouldn't get bored of it. It's just, and again, as an album closer, but a common show opener, it is, I don't know if riffs can be indelible, but it is. No complaints from me there, brother. There you go. Release number one for me. What do you got? And number one for me is garden. Oh, uh, wow. I'm glad that that's, that's awesome. I'm so happy. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, it's when I first heard garden on 10, I was just mesmerized. It was transformative in a lot of ways because nothing else on the record sounds like it. It, it, it. You get taken somewhere with that riff. There's something so atmospheric and melancholy about it. And you, you, all that reverb, when they took it off, when Brendan O'Brien did the remix, that was the one song that I was like, please don't lose. And they did. They lo- you, mm. you lose that, unfortunately, with the remix. That's the one song off of that album where if I had to say, you know what, I'm going back to the original mix to hear this. That's the one that it's going to be. And for me, like it, there's just something about the production that went around that riff that really amplifies and just elevates it in ways that, that it could almost be its own little instrumental for me. Yeah. You know, and I can't say that necessarily about all the other riffs, except for one, which we'll get to uh, when, we, when, we, when we go hard here, buddy. Well, we're going hard now, baby. And uh, I'll start this one. Honorable mentions for me. Uh, amongst the Waves, the chorus riff. It's a great chord structure there. I love that. The, the main intro riff for Rival okay. is so unique. Dissonant little... Dee, 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 dee. So, so, so cool. I put In Hiding, um, but I can see how it straddles both loud and soft. And sure. Something that I thought that the main riff for breath is really cool, but I don't have it in this top five because as much as I love breath, I think that's one of those, the sum of the parts is greater than the parts themselves kind of thing. Right. I just butchered that, that, that saying, but it, it's greater than some of its parts kind of thing. And gotcha. um, yeah, so that's not, that's not in my, in my honorable mention. Um, do you have any honorable mentions that haven't quite made the cut? Uh, yes, actually, I'm going to say the honorable mention on this side, side B, as it were, would probably be, God, I'm looking at this here and I I was going back and forth between these two because it it wasn't easy. Um, probably no way. That's a good yield. Mm. It's a really good one. Um, and there's something in the way that it kind of comes in on the album that you don't get live. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Uh, Probably something I didn't play it for a long time. Maybe. I don't know. Um, but there's something about this, the way that it moves from like left to right on the speaker and it goes, you don't get yeah. that, you know? Um, 
And, and I love it though. There's something about that riff. It just rocks. But, um, there, there, if we're talking about when I first heard it, it was my favorite song on the album when I first heard it. Yeah. Um, but because I've heard it live so, so many times since, not necessarily in person, but I've heard it live. Yeah. I'll, I'll throw it on. It doesn't quite sound the same to me. And so that's why it's some of the luster is lost that it, you know, it's outside the five. Yeah. Well, number five for me, uh, the main slash chorus riff for Hail Hail. <laughs> It's chords, so it's not it's not a single note riff thing, but it's just a chord progression that is I had never seen anything like that before, and it's very iconic, and everyone knows that song, and it's one of those things that it's so catchy that Paul Schaefer and the CBS Orchestra would play it going to commercial break so many damn times on Dave Letterman's show, so <laughs> it's just one of those just great, just get you up for it kind of riffs. Love it. It is a good one. Okay, so my number five is Brother. The verse riff is just... Oh, it's the chunky one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, dude, it just, it just rips, you know? And uh, I understood why, I think it was Jeff, was like pissed that they stopped playing. He wouldn't play live. He was like, what the hell? This song is killer. I'm surprised. I think if they had released that song in a capacity that state of love and trust was released like on a soundtrack i think Ooh, that song would be good shout right up there I, I think it'd be huge in in the pearl jam catalog i think people didn't hear it until so much later that it didn't have a chance to really blossom um because so much of that fan base had grown older and they probably were like oh that's cool that's a cool callback but if if it actually had come out at the time that song would have been so much bigger than than it, it is right now i very much agree with you uh my number four is another one of those you forget the first couple of notes you go oh man let's go let's fucking go it's do the evolution <laughs> it shook the stage in many places including the garden where i was and it is just i get jacked up every time i hear it but it's just so much fun to listen to because it's it sounds unique and you you get there's so much energy behind it. I'm blabbering here, but <laughs> yeah, there you go. Number four for you. Sweet. Four for me is animal. Talk about a song that just crushes, man. I mean that riff. It just it hits you in the face when you first hear it. Even if you took the cymbals and and the percussion all that away and it was just the riff dude it, it still punches you in the face so for me that one definitely is, is a top five riff of all time period i think probably in, in the band's catalog definitely for stone well it's the same for me that's number three for me okay just i mean it's very simple it's just a fucking a note and then a couple little but the way that it just kind of it kind of just pulls you along mm-hmm. and obviously made even more powerful by by Jeff and Dave. It's just, oh man, that's another one of those ones that immediately you're jumping. Oh, on the floor, sure. you're jumping. Fantastic song, fantastic riff. Uh, what is your number three riff hard? Going with, with even flow here. Wow. Ooh, yeah. yeah I mean... Here's your big just, boy. Yeah. It, the fir- it's iconic, man. The first time you hear it, it's like, oh, that. Now, um, it's sad that it kind of became it, uh, the song, the riff that ultimately became the soundtrack for like frat boy life of the 90s. You know what I mean? It was like every frat boy's favorite song in flannel. You know what I mean? <laughs> when in reality, the song is very much kind of an indictment on homelessness and, and the way that, you know, the system kind of doesn't allow yeah. these people to. And so that's unfortunate, but the riff itself, I mean, how do you not just kind of groove to that? You know what I mean? It, well, it's number two for me. So again, you're leading me right there. Just that opening, just down the neck yep. and then boom, da, down, da, down. It's so good. <laughs> there, there are certain songs where you don't even get to the guitars and you're already excited. So like you hear Matt do the hi-hats, mm-hmm. you go, oh, it's even blown. And you get, you're just waiting for that. Doom, 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 doom. 
It's absolutely legendary. It is. What do you got for number two? So number two is Alive. I'm sure most people expected that to be number one, but it's not. I'm very me. intrigued with what number one. You, you should be. You should. Number two is alive. I, it stands the test of time and always will. Um, that you, you talk legendary. I mean, that riff is the type of thing. Like even my dad, who is a huge like 60s and 70s rock guy, bought Pearl Jam's 10, I believe, for that song. He's like, he heard that. And he's like, what's this about? And went out and checked out that <laughs> album. You know? about? What's this about? I mean, that, it, it, it literally... <laughs> It, it, that, it is like a siren call of a guitar. It's impressive. So, and it still is to this day. I mean, you, you'll be hard pressed, I think, to find a song from a guitarist in the 90s that has the, the influence, the far-reaching influence that you'll get with this particular um, with this particular riff, dude, it, it's, it's really, really, really impressive. Um, just the, and, and if you really think about like the way that song, I'm sorry, the way that stone kind of came in with the song, right. You get that, the slide into the intro, the verse riff here, you get all that kind of stuff, but even with Mike just dominating with that whole like E minor pentonic scale at the end and all those chops and all that jazz, it's super, super cool at the end, but obviously just the opening alone you, you said, oh, random schmo in record store hears this. Oh, I know that song. That's the Pearl Jam song that he's going to know, you know? Well, obviously, it's my number one. Yes. Alive. Main riff. And you talk about record stores. You go into Guitar Center and or Sam Ash or something like that. Name me, like, the three or four most common random riffs you're going to hear. Stairway. Sandman. Yeah. Alive. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's going to be up there. You know, so it, it's the song. If someone had to say to me, what's the most iconic, like four seconds of Pearl Jam? It's probably that, that opening riff, the first bar. Incredible. Stone Gossard, you are my hero. What do you got for number one? <laughs> what's better than that, Paul? It's not that it's better, but for, for you, me, it is. Okay. Of the girl, off by Nora. internet has stopped to be <laughs> Paul just broke the <laughs> Paul bro- <laughs> here's here's why here's why okay carry what on. I loved about wait hold on loud this is even this is this is loud this is how loud could, how could of the girl be a loud riff Dude, that that whole that is just a jam session the whole song is just a jam session that's loud to you that's not a ballad that's a jam it's loud enough it's louder than you know Garden. I mean, at which, <laughs> at which point of the song are you talking about? The which whole riff? thing, man. Just the the whole intro to it, the whole opening. The the. It's just. I just think that the the music to. I said this before, where I said that there are certain riffs that you could they could just live in that space as an instrumental. To me, this song doesn't need words. It probably it, it might actually serve better without words. Like, but this how much of this? How much of this is due to Stone's bedrock of a riff? versus McCready doing his McCready things over top of it. I think it's maybe a combination of both, but you could say the same thing for a lot of these Stone songs, I think. You could say the same thing for Black, probably. I mean, I, I think you could make the same argument for the whole second half of Alive, really. I mean, well, you get that opening here. note. Huh? We're talking about singular, singular riffs here. Sure, but I don't know, man. I just think that as a riff... To just be a riff in a space that allows a jam session like that to happen, that's to me like that. That's that's a riff. That, that the whole point of a rhythm guitar is to create that space where everything else just kind of merges together with it, and that that music is able to sustain itself without lyrics. It doesn't need lyrics. What other song that we just talked about is not equally just, as defined? I'm just really by Eddie. hung up on this whole loud quiet thing. Like, well, it's I didn't initially guitar. do loud and quiet. I just did songs and hey. I, I, we had a miscommunication. So I don't know what to tell you, man. 
I don't say. But well, if you if you want, I can bounce of the girl to quiet, which would now make a live number one. I don't know if the internet's going to appreciate that. I don't think it will. <laughs> Send your hate mail to. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, Paul has broken the internet, and we're going to move on to lyric of the week. And Paul, lyric of the week is a Stone song. Oh my God! Look at that. Good producing. And it comes from 10, and it's once. Paul, we've chosen the very end of the song. Uh, give me your impressions. What? What is this? We, we know the story behind the song. We know. We mm-hmm. know what it means to Ed. The Mama Son trilogy. Exactly. It's the. It's Act Two of Mama Son. But what do you make of this portion? How How do you apply it to the to the greater greater scheme of things now? Um. You know what's always struck me about this track and these these lines was the fact that. It begins with once upon a time I could control myself and ends with once upon a time I could love you. So it's almost like you need a sense of like this, the speaker needs to be in control, but be able and, and, and lose himself and love himself to love somebody else. And it, it really kind of helps us understand that when we start letting go of the, these restraints that ultimately serve as the fabric of civilized behavior. Um, when we start giving in to divisiveness and emotion and, and, you know, just primal feelings, we, um, we can't really love each other anymore. We really can't. And I think that it's scary what we're capable of becoming when we allow that to happen. And I think that the aggression in the song has always kind of, it, it's a, attractive to a, a listener in the sense that it really gets the juices flowing. And I think that there's a desire within us to, to embrace that primal instinct sometimes, because we are animals at heart in many ways. And I think that, that song speaks to us musically and lyrically in that respect. But there's always this reminder in the lyrical content that there's a danger to that, you know? And so I think that's part of what makes the song a a hell of a lot more poignant than it gets credit for. I find this, especially this ending here that we've focused in on pretty depressing. (laughs) I mean, there are awesome, obvious notions here, losing control, losing sanity, losing confidence, losing self-esteem, letting others take the blame, shifting it from yourself. And if you break everything down, it's just, it's just, especially the last two lines, it's just super depressing. It's almost manic. It's losing hope. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but it's, it's already happened. The deed's already been done. You've already resigned yourself to your fate. Once upon a time, I could do this. You know, the subject is telling a story. So where are they at now? Are they in prison? Yes, if you're listening to this literally from, you know, footsteps being next. Mm-hmm. But is it, is it hell? Is it a psych ward? You know, if you take this and you apply this to your own personal story, where are you at? And where were you when you were writing this or thinking these words? And the, the human application of these words, everyone connects to these songs in a different way. I mean, why do you think this album resonated so, so greatly in, in the early 90s? Because a lot of people are feeling a lot of these things. Well, Jesus Christ, I can't imagine what people are thinking when they listen to this. Right. You know, one one could and many probably have write they could write a movie based on this yeah. imagery. These four lines illustrate and emote a story just in four lines. That is incredible. You could literally put acts together from four lines out of a song. And it's just scary to think that 
those four lines are so powerful. And yet you as a listener cannot do anything about it because all this shit's already happened. He's just telling you a story. This is what I couldn't do. And you couldn't, you can't save me because it's already done. Mm-hmm. It's fucking frightening. <laughs> True. It is frightening. And up against, um, up against that, up against the music. And we didn't mention, you know, that opening chorus riff from once, but that's fucking incredible. And it, it really, the, the way that that riff moves through its motions really elevates these lines of just hopelessness, but anxiety and ugh, give me the shivers, not just because it's really cold in this room, but good Lord. Any final thoughts or think we've exhausted this thing? I think, I think we have. All right. Live card of the week time. Ready to stand up. All right, Paul, live cut of the week. Uh, obviously from the early, early, early days, where and when are we going? We're going to the Moore Theater in 1992. Um, this is the vault issue number one. Uh, I'm sure most people listening to this probably own that. And uh, I don't know what to say, man. I mean, Brett Eliason, you know, recorded, mixed these bootleg releases, and he uh, he's the keeper of the vault, as it were. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this show, obviously, we mentioned in the past, is famous for for being the, the site of the Pearl Jam no... Uh, I'm sorry. Um, even flow video. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I don't know. It's just quintessential, Pearl, quintessential Pearl jam and the, the sound quality to, to, to get this level of mixing and quality from a, a performance, this charged from the band on a song like this, that is just talk about dialed up. Uh, it, it's, it's hard to beat, I think. Well, uh, you're not wrong. Let's uh, let's head to Seattle and the Moore Theater, January seventeenth, nineteen ninety two. Go crazy!
as you said, Paul, it's um, Brett Eliason was was thankfully recording this show, found those tapes, mixed them together. We got uh, pretty much all the show except for Bob O'Reilly. Mm-hmm. And the, I mean, the 10 songs from this era are a different breed. There's something about once though, and the way that Ed sings once that you're never going to find again. No, he's There's not a, that person anymore. He, well, he's not. And so he, he can't sing it, that way anymore. <laughs> physically speaking, he can't sing that way anymore. And just also, he doesn't have that of his character. No. And there are plenty of performances that I'm sure I could find in the last, you know, dozen years that are very good. I mean, I can think of a few off the top of my head that are, that are just, they're great, but they're not going to hit the way that once hits in the early nineties. No. And this is, this is top of the tops. Mm-hmm. Well, we've come to the end of our stone show. We'll call it a stone show. We should call it a stone show. And I'm curious to see now what your top five stone songs are going to be. Cause you got of the girl just swinging baby. Oh, it's in there. <laughs> it's in there. I mean, I don't know. We got to save it though for like, you know, mid 21 or something like that. Yeah. I just, it, it it's such a cool groove, dude. Like it's you just cool. literally put that on and it, it, it's hard to not just like sit there and just do your, you know, just, yeah, I'm digging you're, you're this, stone, you know? your stone neck bobbing. I'm thing. stoned out to stone, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, like I said before, send your hate mail to stateofallentrustpod <laughs> at gmail.com and uh, Paul will read it and he'll cry. But it's ah, fine. I will. I will. It's That's okay. Good. Well, we will uh, We will see you next week with more and a new episode. We're into December. My goodness, Paul. It's almost the end of this. Tis the as season. I said, as I said, fuck of a year. <sighs> almost through it. Dude, don't ruin Christmas, too. Come on. We are in, in we, we are allowed to enjoy Don't in Christmas. Don't in <laughs> Maybe we should do our favorite Christmas songs coming up. More on Christmas. <laughs> Happy holidays. Hey. The cups are green. Remember that whole thing, the cups at Starbucks? Wasn't that Yes. Yeah. Jesus. Oh god. For those of us for those of you guys out of the country, I I I really hope you understand that we have some interesting people in this country who get mad about things that should be getting mad about. Anyway, before we go down a rabbit hole here, you've been listening to The State of Love and Trust. Yeah.